When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. You may be seated. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's important that these are the first words that we hear from Jesus as he hangs on the cross tonight. It's important because they are words of forgiveness. But it's also important because these are the words that set the tone for everything that we are going to experience tonight. Father, forgive them. Let's think about the power of these words. Jesus the man who has been crucified, the man who his disciples have rejected, prays to the Father on behalf of those who don't know what they're doing. And I'm reminded immediately of how many times I like to think that I know what I'm doing. I'm reminded of how many times I like to think that I have my life figured out, that it belongs to me, that I know what's best for me, and how many times I had turned away from Jesus because of this, even after I had been his disciple, and had known his voice. And then I hear Jesus' words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think about those students that I've had in youth group, those college students that I've taught, those adults that I've had in church, and how many times I've seen people turn away from Jesus because they were convinced that they had life figured out and that Jesus wasn't a necessary part of their life. And then I hear Jesus' words, Father, Give them. They don't know what they're doing. As we encounter Jesus' first words from the cross tonight, let us remember that these are words that are for all of us, and that Jesus' crucifixion and sacrifice are for all of us. They are words that we can stand on and stand behind because Jesus has given himself so that we can be forgiven. But they are also words for all those who don't know what they're doing even when we're convinced that we have it all figured out. And so for anyone who has ever tried to take control of their own lives and turned away from Christ in the process, let us look upon this crucified man and hear his words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. One of the criminals who had hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished surely, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciples took her into his home. 
This is one of the lighter of the seven last words of Jesus. Jesus making provisions for his mother. It's touching, really, but you have to wonder, for a guy who spent so much of his time talking about his own death, don't you think he would have been a little more prepared? Talking about last-minute planning, Jesus planning for provisions, even hanging on the cross. Maybe it was because Jesus didn't spend that much time with his mother, at least that, not that much that we see in John's Gospel. In fact, there's only one other time in John's Gospel that we see Jesus and his mother together, and it's at a wedding feast in Cana. Once at a wedding feast and once at a funeral, like a lot of families, I guess. And what's worse is both of those times he sees her, he doesn't call her mom or mother. He calls her both times woman. Ouch. At the wedding, Mary runs up to her son and he says, Jesus, the bride and groom have run out of wine. In other words, this party's about to die. Can we do something to spice it up? And Jesus says, woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Teenagers out there, we don't have very many tonight, but I'm going to give you a tip if you're here. When your mom comes home and asks you to clean your room, do not say, woman, my hour has not yet come. You're not the son of God. It's not going to work for you. But even after these seemingly hurtful remarks, Jesus turns gallons and gallons and gallons of water into wine. And not just any wine, the best wine that these wedding guests had ever had. Here, we see these two once again at the foot of the cross. Not at a wedding, but at a funeral. Mary is asking Uh, Mary is not asking anything of him this time. In fact, she's just standing there at the foot of the cross watching her son die slowly and painfully. Jesus sees her and the beloved disciple and calls her woman once more. Now, I don't think that Jesus meant it to be hurtful or rude that he called his mother woman instead of mom. You see... In a way, Mary in John's Gospel isn't just Jesus' mother, and so he doesn't call her that. I think Mary is actually a symbol for the church, the body that bears Christ into the world. She is the one who looks to Jesus for new life. She is the one whom Jesus provides for even in her death. And how does Jesus provide for her? By giving her to the disciple who he loved. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The church being given over to the disciple and the disciple given over to the church. Tonight, we gather here as disciples. We are Christ's disciples, much like that first Good Friday gathered at the foot of the cross. That's probably why you came to this service because you are a disciple of Christ. And we stand at the foot of the cross looking at our dying Savior. Sometimes we feel like we come to the foot of the cross alone. The hardest hours of our life are often the loneliest hours. No one knows what we feel or what we're going through. But Jesus sees us standing 
there at the foot of the cross, and he reminds us that we do not stand alone, not even in our darkest hour. The church is here for us, and we must also be here for the church. Jesus' hour, his time, it wasn't at the wedding feast in Cana. Jesus' hour was on the cross. The final words of this passage tell us that from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. The beloved disciple who is faithful to Jesus is the one who cares for Christ's church. Tonight, as we reflect on the death of our Lord, I hope you can fight the temptation to think that this is just about you and Jesus, because it's not. When we're faithful to follow Jesus to the foot of the cross, we are never alone. To be honest, I don't think we could have made it to the foot of the cross on that long, cold, hard journey if we had been alone, because it's just too hard. But remember this, that even in his very last breath, Jesus was making provision for you and for me. And if you don't believe, look into the faces of your brothers and sisters sitting here next to you tonight. Jesus' commandment in John chapter 15 Love one another as I have first loved you. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the greatest mysteries of the crucifixion confronts us in this passage. Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, asks the Father why he has been forsaken. His cry is one that Jesus has known since a boy when he first heard Psalm 22 begin with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And see, Psalm 22 goes on to cry out for the Lord's provision for the Lord to vindicate the one who is suffering. And it also talks about our bones being on display and our clothes being cast for lots. But there's a deeper mystery here. And that is that God actually has abandoned God. There's a breach. There's a break in who God actually is. In God, the Son being abandoned by God the Father in the Spirit withdrawing from the relationship between the Father and the Son, the Trinity is literally broken apart in the crucifixion. Jesus' cry of forsakenness from the cross means that forsakenness at the very heart of who God is. On the cross, God knows the horror of being forsaken. Well, it matters because God takes up that abandonment and that forsakenness and holds it in who God actually is. For all those here tonight who have known the pain of abandonment, of being forsaken, of loneliness or sorrow from the one who should have never abandoned you, know this tonight. We worship a God who has known abandonment and who invites you to find reconciliation healing because he too has been forsaken. 
In fact, such abandonment means that God gave everything on a fundamental level so that you might know the salvation of love. So that you might know the embrace of an unfailing love. God took forsakenness itself into his own life. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Not one of our favorite words to hear Jesus say from the cross. And as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking that perhaps of all the civilizations, of all the societies that have come before us, perhaps our society is the most fearful of our finitude, of our mortality. Perhaps more than any other society that's come before us, ours most tries to grasp and hang on to life. We don't want to look any closer to death than we were yesterday. We don't want to feel any closer to death than we were yesterday. We even sometimes celebrate birthdays with black balloons and, uh, and joke about getting closer to the grave. But behind our jokes is really this deep fear that we have of our own mortality and our own finitude. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, says from the cross, it is finished. And I think because of our fear of death, we often like to gloss over this word. Many of you probably saw the YouTube video that circulated several years back uh, with this phenomenal preacher talking about Good Friday, but constantly saying, but Sunday's coming, but Sunday's coming. After every refrain, but Sunday's coming. And sometimes when we focus too much on the fact that Sunday's coming, it allows us to not feel the pain of Good Friday. We so want to believe that there is more to life, and so we gloss over the pain of Good Friday, and we tell ourselves, but Sunday's coming. But Sunday's coming. And I wonder if that's even reflected in the trends that we see this evening. We have a bit of a sparse crowd tonight. That's okay. But Sunday morning, I, I hope and pray this place is going to be packed out. Amen. That's right. I hope and pray. And, and I think part of that, though, is because our culture, we love to get dressed up on Easter and, and hunt for eggs and, and celebrate new life. But death, death is a little harder for us to deal with. Jesus said it is finished because his work here on earth, what he had come to do, was finished. The resurrection, the rest, that he left in the hands of the Father because Jesus, the Son of God, trusted so deeply and so completely the Heavenly Father that he was willing to put even his very life into the Father's hands. And as I was reflecting on this, I was so grasped by the idea that Jesus, 
even, even if it had not been for the resurrection. I, I don't think that Jesus and the Father were sitting up in heaven saying, okay, I'll go down to earth as long as you resurrect me. Deal? Deal. What I want us to take away from this word tonight is that Jesus would have gone to the cross for you without the promise of glory. Jesus would have borne the marks for you without the promise of exaltation. Jesus would have done all of this and did all of this for you and uttered, it is finished. I did everything. I gave every last drop so that the people who I love would not have to experience the pain that I've experienced. All of it for you. It is finished. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. upon this man who is now pinned upon a tree. We are to be pitied for everything that we had hoped has now breathed his last. And yet we are left with Jesus' final words that he cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus committed his entire being, his future, everything that he was into the hands of the Father, entrusting the Father even as he wonders if the Father has forsaken him. And I wonder for us tonight, on Good Friday, are we able to trust the Father with our future? Can we commit everything that we are into the hands of the Father, even if we don't know what's coming? Was Jesus aware of what was going to happen in three days? I don't know. I suspect that Jesus probably wouldn't have prayed as earnestly in Gethsemane had he known the resurrection was at hand. But I do know this, that Jesus' death was real, and that he entrusted everything that he was and everything that he had into the Father's hands so the Father might take those things that Jesus had sacrificed and make something incredibly new come from those things. Are we willing to do the same? Tonight, all of our hopes are pinned upon a cross. And so as we leave, a darkness has come across the land. We must, as disciples of Jesus, commit ourselves into the Father's hands, for we have no other hope. Trusting that the Father will take this death and bring it to new life. Tonight you're welcome to stay and reflect as long as you would like and go 
as you are willing.